This podcast was produced on Monday, October 30th at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's time for a change in this country, my friends. A real change! Justin Trudeau's liberals swept to power promising real change. As the Grits celebrate two years in government, we mark the occasion by taking a look back at what was promised. No relationship is more important to me and to Canada than the one with First Nations, Métis Nation and Inuit peoples. We are committed to ensuring that the 2015 election will be the last federal election using First Past the Post. And what was delivered? The commitment I made uh, repeatedly and explicitly on electoral reform I made uh, because it really mattered to me. So it was a very difficult decision for me. There was no openness to compromise in the other parties and I wasn't going to use my majority to bring in a system just to tick off a box on an election platform. On behalf of the Assembly of First Nations, uh... Again, we're supportive of the work going forward. So now we have the 94 calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But if you don't have an implementation plan, if you don't have an implementation strategy, they just gather dust. I'm Althea Raj, and this is Follow Up, a HuffPost Canada politics podcast. This week on the show, expectations meet reality. Whether it was promising to uphold all 94 recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission or pledging to make government more accountable and transparent, on many files, the Liberals haven't always lived up to expectations. We gather some political pundits to talk about the highs and lows of Trudeau 2.0. While the Liberals started strong, they reintroduced the long-form census, established a more generous Canada child benefit, and lowered the middle-income tax bracket. They welcomed more than 25,000 government-sponsored Syrian refugees, legislated medically-assisted dying, launched a defense policy review that this summer pledged $60 billion in new spending over the next two decades. At the same time, they plunged the country into decades of structural deficits. They introduced legislation that makes it harder to obtain information from the government rather than making it open by default. They created an infrastructure bank that will likely be selling public assets to foreign hedge funds. And still, more than 14 months after announcing Canada would be joining a new UN peacekeeping mission, Canadians have no idea where their troops will be risking their lives. With a stunning victory in Canada's recent general election, Trudeau ended a decade of Conservative rule in Canada. Mr. Trudeau, as the new Prime Minister, is going to have some challenges. Unless he does achieve that majority, then of course the whole game changes and he's pretty well given carte blanche for four years. One of the shocks in the budget is that despite the pronouncements in Paris at the signing of the Accord, Canada is actually reducing what it's spending to fight climate change. And that is scandalous. 
Well, let's turn now to the federal budget, the first for the new Liberal government. It forecasts big deficits over the next five years and lots of spending. Why did the government kill the electoral reform bill? Uh, possibly because they'd been dreaming about doing it uh, from day one. He campaigned on real change and ending cynicism in politics, and now he's completely going back on that. He has betrayed every one of the things that he committed to in Paris. I guess the lesson is that we shouldn't be fooled by good-looking liberals. Joining me to talk about the Trudeau government's first two years in office are Rachel Curran, Prime Minister Stephen Harper's former policy advisor and now an associate with Harper & Associates. Hi, Althea. Greg McEachran is a former advisor to several liberal ministers and the vice president of government relations for Enveronics Communications. Hello. And Carl Belanger is a past national director of the NDP and an advisor at times spokesman for several former NDP leaders, Alexa McDonough and Jack Layton. Carl is now the president of the Douglas Caldwell Foundation. Hi. Welcome to all of you. Thank you. Greg, I'm going to start with you as a liberal on the panel. Um, what, in your view, are the Liberals' accomplishments in these first two years? Well, I think there's some things that you can point to right away. Early on, they did the the uh, tax cut for the middle class. They did that, you know, as soon as they they were elected. That's what they talked about. And I used to say for a long time that whenever they did an announcement, whatever the headline was, the sub-headline was, were different than the last guys. So mm -hmm. everything that they were trying to do was to show that they were very different from the Harper government. Um, and I think we saw that from the very beginning. Um, the Prime Minister walked the walk on gender parity in his own cabinet. Um, he also had said at one point the days of hyphenated liberals were gone. And uh, so, you know, there was no Martin liberals, there were no mm -hmm. Gretchen liberals. Um, but I think you also saw how that affected um, the day-to-day -day running of this government is um, you didn't have a lot of gray hair around. You didn't have a lot of people from previous administrations. And even in terms of cabinet, you didn't have a lot of parliamentary veterans. Are you being critical here that there's not enough gray hairs around the cabinet table, that the cabinet would have benefited from some previous expertise? Yeah, I, I would say that. I, I think that, you know, there's a there's a challenge in in both on the on the parliamentary side when you go from third place to first place. You're obviously going to have a lot of fresh faces. Um, but if you look at a lot of the issues that have happened to cabinet ministers, um, for the most part, it's it's happening to rookie cabinet ministers. No, we're not cooking anything up. No, we're not trying to improve things for ourselves. We're doing okay, we're doing this for Canadians. Canadians are outraged and they are expressing their concerns about this Prime Minister's power grab. Even the media has condemned his actions. Today, after question period, we're gonna be voting on a motion calling on the Liberals to finally commit to not changing the standing orders unless they have agreement from the opposition parties. Will the Liberals do the right thing and once and for all stop this attempt to ram these changes through we promised Canadians that we would bring a new approach to Ottawa to ensure that their voices were also heard in this place. We respect Mr. Speaker, it's those kinds of those kind of non-answers that are eroding our democracy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What gives? 
you know, it's a trite little comment, but politics is hard. And I think there's a lot of um, people around the, the Trudeau administration have realized this. The other thing I'd, I'd add on this is just on staffing and that uh, there is a five-year ban. Um, if I was to go in and work for this government, I couldn't work in the area of lobbying for five years. I'm not sure that they were interested in a lot of um, senior people, but there is a lot of young and experienced staff. And, and it's two years in, and some of them seem to be acting like their boss just walked up the driveway and got accepted into cabinet. We're actually two years away from an election, and I think it's time to kind of dig down. You guys have been so patient. <laughs> Sorry, I talked a lot there. <laughs> I can leave now. Carl is totally unimpressed with his arms crossed. Go ahead. Well, I mean, I think I'll give this to, to the liberals, is that in terms of what they've accomplished is to change the tone of the conversation, change the tone of the political discourse. In terms of substance, I don't think much has changed from the ARPA era. I mean, there's been a few achievements. We've talked about the child, uh, the child benefit and a few other things. Uh, but we've entered uh, this era of rock star politic, uh, of uh, Star Wars sock diplomacy. <laughs> and so I guess it works for Canada in a way. I mean, yes, he's going around and showing Chewbacca on his ankles and Canada is back. Yoo-hoo. Uh, I don't know. I think that when you dig down, uh, I think Craig was alluding to it, there's a lot of problems two years after. And, and we're seeing it right now. This government is in its midlife crisis. Um, their major promises are being broken one after the other. Electoral reform is gone. Uh, you can see that uh, on the small small business, uh, they're trying to do something that they did not promise, and then they had to bring something that they said they wouldn't do, even though they had promised it. Uh, every major file, uh, they're dropping the ball. The Netflix announcement was a disaster and self-inflicted wound. Nobody saw it coming, yeah, and they should have seen it coming. Exactly. And, uh, and Quebec is the place where they're still riding high compared to the rest of the country, so they need to be careful about that. And, and then, of course, there's the old procurement issue where, where we're Buying jets uh, may be used uh, from a company that we are trying to boycott at the same time because Bombardier uh, is being uh, wronged by, by, by Boeing. Uh, so there's a lot of files where they don't really seem to know where they're going. And, and to go back to Greg's point about, about gray hair around the table, I would call it experience around the table, they had senior ministers that were there that had experience, John McCollum and Stéphane Zion. And next thing you know, they're kicked out and they're sent away. Uh, and, and they're being replaced by rookies. And, and Greg is right that the staff around them are also rookies, partly because of the five-year ban. And I don't think it's because the government wants to approach these people. I think it's because these people don't want to leave their position because they want to continue benefiting from, from, from their current employment and not be stuck in limbo if this government falls in two years, which could happen. Rachel has been furiously writing down some notes. <laughs> <laughs> well, things I agree with, things I disagree with. Uh, listen, so we're talking about the liberal accomplishments list. It's pretty short, um, frankly, because nearly every substantive policy file that the government touches um, goes terribly for them. So here's here's where I would give them credit. Um, so Greg mentioned the child care benefits when uh, I think they did a good job on that. That was, by the way, a continuation of a, a Stephen Harper policy. Right. You give checks every month to parents to look after their kids. So they enhanced that benefit, rolled the other child care benefits into it, and, and they've done a good job, I think, delivering on that. 
The other one was the fairly early one was the euthanasia bill. So they did a fairly good job, I think, of drafting that legislation, getting it through the House, getting generally widespread um, support for for the content of that. Um, I'm also going to give them credit for managing the U.S. relationship pretty well. But really, I think the most important accomplishment has been to to maintain this um, degree of, of political support and political success in the face of these policy disasters. So one thing after another has gone wrong for them. But as but as Carl says, they're still doing really well in the polls in Quebec. They're not doing badly elsewhere. Uh, so something is feeding that, and a lot of it has to do with their ability, I think, to do politics well. They're not very good at the governing side of government, but they're pretty good at the politics side. The style side, people like the prime minister, he's charismatic, he engages with people, um, and he's getting a lot of credit for that and for a, a, a positive tone. So look, I mean, that that is no small that is no small feat when you can you know kind of screw up everything you touch but still maintain a fairly high level of political support okay let's talk about some of the stumbles Trudeau's grace period came to a screeching halt as Canada was consumed by Elbowgate, a scandal concerning Trudeau apparently manhandling a Canadian MP and elbowing another during an altercation in Canada's House of Commons. The government wants to unilaterally change the rules that govern the House of Commons. Trudeau centralizing his powers, the accusation, was something he said he would never do like his father uh, done in the 1970s. It's a good idea, but it's an irrelevant idea when the Liberals in this committee are just going to ram through whatever the f they want. Exactly. Yep. I withdraw that word. The Prime Minister has had a serious lapse in judgment. He's hosting Liberal Party fundraisers with Chinese billionaires. Is there anyone on that side of the House that has a problem with the Prime Minister selling access and influence to billionaire communist donors? Today, for the first time, he admitted he took a billionaire's private helicopter on his secret family vacation. The trip was to a private island in the Bahamas. Bell Island is owned by the Aga Khan, spiritual leader to 15 million Ismaili Muslims and a wealthy philanthropist whose charitable foundation gets millions of dollars from the Canadian government. Liberal tax reform proposals managed to piss off doctors, farmers, small business owners and recently retail staff and waiters. It was a communications nightmare, but I'm sure the PM trusts Bill Morneau to handle the cleanup, right? My questions are actually for Minister Morneau. Um... I'll take them. It's an unusual political scandal. A minister follows ethics guidelines to the letter, but still pays a heavy price. What we've seen over the last week is that I need to do more. As a minister of finance in this role, it's important to make sure people have absolute confidence. Doing more means selling the shares he owns in his former company, Morneau Chappelle, and putting everything else in a blind trust, something the ethics commissioner advised him just last year wasn't necessary. The finance minister announced a multi-million dollar donation today that he thought would bury the conflict of interest allegations against him. Tonight, that doesn't seem to be the case. The ethics commissioner, with whom he spent 90 minutes this morning, is now considering an investigation. Are the Liberals' problems problems of their own making? 
Yeah, I, I would say uh, there's there's a theme to a lot of these, and they seem to be self-inflicted. Um, so, you know, as the, the red stripe here, I will say, and this is, you know, from the time that I've been following politics, which would be around, you know, 1988 until present day, there is different tones to each of the parties. And liberals tend to air their grievances in public. The NDP conservatives tend to hold their, clar- their cards closer to their vest. But I, I think what was uh, a, a big indication of this was um, the reaction to the small business um, announcement, consultation, what have you, when you have the chair of the Finance Committee, Liberal MP Wayne Easter, in public very, very unhappy about this. Um, and here you have, in the summer of 2017, barely two years into, not even two years into the, the mandate, and you have the Liberal chair of the committee, so unhappy with the Finance Minister, he's not talking to the Finance Minister, he's talking to reporters about it. So I think that's as telling as you can get about where the Liberal caucus was on this. There may be other reasons. Mr. Easter may have had, you know, other agendas. Who knows? But I think that's very problematic. Is it just inexperience, which you've touched upon? Or is there, is it also maybe incompetence? Well, both. Uh, You're absolutely right to point out that it is both incompetence and inexperience. But I'm going to say something to add to what Greg was saying, is that uh, uh, the Liberal Party sees itself as the natural governing party. And, and as such, uh, there's, it's a big tent party. So there's a more conservative wing and a more you know, liberal, small-hell liberal wing. And uh, depending on who's in charge, uh, one of the other wing will see itself as the opposition within the government. And we've seen that in the past under the Chrétien government, under the previous Trudeau government, uh, where, where you know, you, you have the two factions within the governing party. One is speaking very loudly about the action of the government, and they're kind of balancing uh, their electorate that way because, you know, we have this set of principles, and if you don't like them, we also have this set of principles. I, I would disagree with the national governing party. Um, uh, Claim. I think if that was the case, it's not the case anymore. I think Stefan Dion and Michael Ignati have cured the Liberal Party of that. Um, there was a time where if you were a Liberal leader, you were guaranteed to be Prime Minister, and that's not the case anymore. And then they're very careful, they're very concerned about the, the arrogance that that puts. Are they a centrist party? Absolutely. And the centre moves. So I think there is sometimes some allowance for the fact that if they can kind of you know, take the best of the New Democrat ideas and the best of policies that were left over by Stephen Harper, absolutely they're going to do that. But do they think it's a buy? No, I don't think, I think but, those but, days are and gone. Yet, and yet you see the same attitude of arrogance and entitlement and right. the violation of ethics and conflict of interest rules on almost a daily basis cropping up, uh, cro- cropping up constantly now. But how is that so, working so for that them? Is, <laughs> it's well, not. Well, no, it's not. And I would put that on the stumbles list for sure. But I don't think you can say that they have moved beyond that attitude entirely because you still see a demonstration of it in the way that they are behaving, in the way that they treat taxpayer money. I think there's always going to be some element of arrogance around every administration when you're in. And it's funny how quickly that can move. And that even goes in when you're in opposition and the new leader comes in. I saw this when Mr. Ignatieff won. Um, You know, there's a little bit of time where you, you know, there's the ins and the outs and you really want to be an in. It's the problem with winning. It usually brings arrogance, and that's true uh, in all party, uh, all parties. But but you know, especially true with the Liberal Party, which has won most of the time in this country. Okay, I want I want to move this towards the international stage. 
I have a simple message for you. On behalf of 35 million Canadians, we're back. Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada, heartthrob phenom who rode a wave of flowers and sunshine to victory last fall. It is so important that we all understand uh, that it's not only uh, that men can be feminists, it's that men should be feminists as well. We're here with a man who has become a friend of mine, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. President Trump, you seem to suggest that Syrian refugees are a, a Trojan horse for potential terrorism, uh, while the Prime Minister hugs refugees and welcomes them with open arms. We've had to work with a president who is, uh, I won't say anything negative of them, but he's capricious to say the least, and he definitely doesn't like NAFTA. Mr. President, is NAFTA dead? We'll see what happens. Frankly, I am surprised and disappointed by the resistance to change from our negotiating partners on both fronts. Trudeau came into office, pledging Canada was back, we're going to re-engage with multilateral institutions. Um, he was feted at the White House with Barack Obama. Everything seemed to be rosy, and then Donald Trump was elected. How much of an impact has Donald Trump's election had on the government's agenda? I, I think it's... I think it's uh, it's changed everything. I think you know from um, the the last budget, which was supposed to be about innovation, mm -hmm. until it wasn't, uh, and it changed because of of um, uh, of the new administration. I mean, um, Rachel alluded um, earlier to uh, I, we have to find very elegant and diplomatic ways to describe um, this presidency. Um, but it is... You don't have to here. <laughs> <laughs> it's all-encompassing. I mean, it just, there's so much. And again, I think because uh, not only, you know, our largest trade, trading partner, uh, our neighbor, um, but also because a trade deal was put to the forefront right away. I agree that the election of Trump was a real game-changer for the Liberal government. It's just one of those things, those events that you have to adapt your agenda to. Um, the Carper government had the global recession uh, that came out of essentially nowhere in 0809 and had to set its agenda aside to respond to that uh, quickly and comprehensively. Uh, the Liberal governments had to do the same thing, I think, with the election of Trump and now this, this um, promise that he's going to renegotiate NAFTA to get a better deal for the U.S. Um, so, so listen, they've made, done a good job of managing the relationship. We touched on this earlier, though. That's a very different thing from adopting the right negotiating strategy. And there are some real problems, I think, with the strategy that they're using to renegotiate, unsurprisingly, and they renegotiate that agreement. Did you be talking uh, about a memo <laughs> that we would have heard of well, in the last couple of days? That memo was never intended for public distribution. But, this but is there's a memo. A, I'm just going to tell the audience. This is a memo that... Former Prime Minister Stephen Harper penned to the clients of Harper and Associates, where he, yeah. I'm sure you're going to tell us the and, points and in which you disagree, but where okay. he very uh, sharply criticized liberal governments. And, and I didn't include it. Well, yeah, well no, not, 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 not the government so much as the strategy the government was adopting in approaching um, the rene renegotiation of NAFTA. I mean, it's critical. This agreement is really critical to our economy. We are much more reliant on trade with the U.S. than the U.S. is on, on trade with us. Uh, and so we were, we are not at all holding um, the same number of cards. We are not on a level playing field when we're negotiating this. So one thing the Liberal government's done, which has been problematic, is to really align ourselves with Mexico and say, you do a deal with us both, or you don't get, you don't do a deal at all. 
well, the U.S.'s problem is with Mexico. Mexico. Donald Trump's problem is with Mexico. He's got a political problem with Mexico, and he's arguably got a policy problem in the form of a bigger trade deficit with Mexico. Uh, and so it makes no sense for us to say uh, all for one and one for all with Mexico. There's a bus coming at Mexico. Uh, we don't have to throw Mexico under the bus. It's coming at Mexico. I think we choose not to step in front of it. They've also chosen to say these positions that the U.S. is presenting to us are complete non-starters. They're poison pills. They're red lines. We're not going to talk about them. That only works. That kind of strategy only works if you're prepared to lose the agreement altogether. I think Mr. Harper's view is, and many others agree with him, that Donald Trump's threat to terminate this agreement is a serious one. I disagree. I think, um, you know, there, there, if it's not NAFTA, there's going to be other trade deals. There has to be. There's, there's too much trade that's going on. Trade with the U.S. represents something like 50% of Ontario's GDP. We can't simply say, well, if we lose NAFTA, we'll just move on. It's not that easy. I think what we're hearing here um, shows uh, to which extent Trump has changed the game for Canada. Because not only is he the focus of the conversation here, but he's also the focus of the government. He's the only thing they're talking about when it comes to international relationships. Uh, uh, you know, there's not a lot of things being said about China. There's not a lot of things about what's going on in Afghanistan. Uh, there's a lot of things going on in the world. And Canada is back and was back in Paris with Stephen Harper's targets, but nobody's talking about that either. Trump has changed everything, uh, and the government, rightly or wrongly, probably rightly, is spending a lot of energy to manage that 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 relationship. A lot of ministers were parroting in Washington after his election. Um, a lot of uh, officials were going down there to establish those relationships uh, at different levels, uh, and, and also trying to decipher what Trump was saying publicly and what it meant uh, behind closed doors, because the officials are going in a little bit blind, uh, and I'm talking about American officials as well as Canadian officials, because they never know what their boss is going to say on Twitter uh, or elsewhere about the trade deals or whatever other files that, that are ongoing. The guy does not play by the normal rules of politics. Mm -hmm. So we need to get that out of our system and realize that this guy is a different beast altogether. And there are more and more beasts like him that are going to pop up in the world because uh, you know, voters are just starting to be fed up with the traditional politicians. There's a lot of unpredictability with the voters. We've seen it in Canada as well, like in Alberta, the NDP won, right? Because they were fed up with the traditional conservative government. Now that's- There's no safe seats anymore. There's no safe seats anymore anywhere. And we just saw it in Lac-Saint-Jean, Lucien Bouchard's old seat, where the bloc could have won. Denis Lebel's old seat, which the conservatives should have held, won for the first time in, in what, 37 years by the Liberal Party of Canada. Uh, things have changed, and you cannot take anything for granted uh, because the voters are very fickle, and they do not care for people not delivering or or not not giving them what they want, and talk and they are tired of talking points and platitude. And this is the danger facing this government: is that there's a lot of talking points, like those famous turkey talking points that liberals got for Thanksgiving, <laughs> <laughs> worth every cent. for it a little bit. Carl mentioned Lac Saint-Jean, which was a very big win. I'm told it was number 77 on the list of 78 seats the Liberals thought they would be able to win. Um, as in this was a 
let's not waste our resources. Of course, the by-election, it helps when you can just funnel all your resources into one one race. But and still, they did funnel uh, yeah. a lot of resources, including <laughs> government resources. Still, oh, still, well, still the fact that it was, you know, we've had eight by-elections, and this was the only one that changed color, basically. Right. Um, what does this mean going forward? We're talking, in the House of Commons, it seems like the government's being pummeled, but outside of the House of Commons, nobody seems to care. Yeah, I think this was a big victory for the Liberals, and I think this is why I put continued political support and success at the top of their accomplishments agenda. Because you've got this list of files that um, that they've just mismanaged totally. Relationship with First Nations, the Netflix um, rollout that, that Carl talked about, most recently the tax proposals, um, managing pipelines, national unity, like, you know, the negotiating strategy we just talked about, infrastructure projects are not being funded, money's not getting out of the door. So you've got, I mean, we could we could go on for half an hour about the files that are being badly managed um, or, or not managed at all. Uh, and yet the government still maintains um, a really robust degree of political support. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they're good at the politics of politics, um, the style, the pizzazz. The prime minister himself is personally very popular. I think that made a real difference uh, in the in the Quebec by-election. Um, so we'll see if that, again, we'll see if that's enough. You know, every election has a story. The last election, the Liberals were talking about reinvesting in the future, but then in the fiscal update this fall, they seem to have taken the first opportunity to talk about giving goodies back to parents. What is the story that the Liberals are going to tell going into the next election? The challenge is there's a lot of you know seat by seat that would have won because of Justin Trudeau's coattails, and those people may not have those coattails again this time. It may be about the job that they've done as, as Member of Parliament. We know that most people vote because of a national leader. So I think Justin Trudeau has to be able to point to what successes he's been able to do, to do and, and to see where people um, are happy with the job that he, he did. I saw a poll last week where it's um, not surprising, um, based on the conversation we've had so far, but Canadians are really happy with him on what he's done um, you know, globally in terms of that. On some of the other things, they're a little bit more reticent. Um, They've never uh, had a great um, success so far in terms of getting infrastructure out the door. We know that even still that they're not going to get all the money out the door, which is not an uncommon problem for for governments. But if you add um, inexperience uh, to it, it does start to create a theme. And if the Liberals get in trouble, they will say, vote for us or else you will get Trump light which will be Andrew Scheer. Uh, you can see it right now playing out. It's being written. Uh, some of the things that are not sticking right now as much as we, you know, as, as we would think, like the Bill Morneau situation uh, and his, his, you know, conflict of, uh, of interest and his French villa he forgot about and all these things, right, that, that you can make a $5 million donation to charity and not, not break a sweat. Uh, those things are adding up right now, and you can be sure that uh, the opposition parties are, are preparing and testing the messaging for the next election as we speak. Uh, the, everything is new when the election comes around. These things will come up again. Uh, it's not the last you've heard uh, of it, and in fact, the story right now is not, is not over, but you, it will all come back during the election. Um, voters do not really care what's happening in the House. 
But when they start paying attention, like they have impressions that, that, that were set because of that ongoing conversation. And those impressions are really hard to wrestle away. Uh, and, and if the opposition are able to make it stick in the mind of the people, even though they don't change the vote, if the oppression in there, they can build on that and change the results at the end of the day. So that's basically the election in a nutshell. Uh, <laughs> you can listen to this in two years and tell me I was right. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel, closing thoughts? Yeah, I, I think Carl's right. So people will be, you know, looking at the government, looking at its record, maybe not being that impressed by its record. But the other parties are going to have to do more than point to the government and say, you know, they haven't been doing a very good job. And so vote for us instead. That's never been enough um, to get a leader elected. So they will have to put forward a robust platform and give people a reason to vote for them, as well as simply criticizing what the government has or has not done so far. Thank you. Well, we know what the opposition feels the Liberals have done. A whole lot of nothing is what they've accomplished. A whole lot of nothing. Liberal MPs, however, think they've done a pretty good job. Here are some of their thoughts on their first two years in power. Hi, I'm Bill Blair. I'm Member of Parliament for Scarborough Southwest and here in the, uh, the lobby of the House of Parliament. I'll tell you, in my riding, I've got neighborhoods where 57% of the kids were living below the poverty line. A child Canada benefit has an enormous impact on those communities and in those neighborhoods. You know, when you give low-income low families a little bit of help, they don't put it in the bank and sit on it. They go out and invest it in their families. They invest it in groceries and opportunities for their kids and better shoes and better coats and better housing. And so that money went back into the economy and that's, that's driving the growth of, of this country. Hi, my name is Navdeep Baines. I'm the Minister of Innovation, Science and Economic Development. Since the last two years we've been in government, we're really proud of the fact that there's been over 450,000 jobs created in the Canadian economy. Do you want to talk to me about challenges? What challenges has the government faced in the last two years? I think the challenges that we face are really just global anxieties. So Brexit, for example, uh, and the impact that can have on the global economy. As you mentioned, the elections in the U.S., the impl implications that can have on immigration and migration. So I think we're mindful of the fact that we're not an island. Hi, my name is Doug Elfson. I'm the uh, Member of Parliament for Charleswood, St. James, Assiniboia, Headingley in Winnipeg. I think initially when we were talking about uh, our changes to the uh, you know, uh, tax changes, I think we could have messaged that better because uh, there were a lot of, uh, uh, lot of professionals, a lot of um, small business owners that felt unfairly targeted and uh, I think that was our fault for our messaging. But I think we've come to the right place and shown that what we're after is uh, making sure that this is uh, tax fairness for all and making sure that you know farmers aren't affected, small business owners can still invest in their uh, businesses and grow and that uh, no one's retirement is affected by this. Of course your challenges, I mean you don't, 
You don't walk in and fix things in three months. My name is Hedy Fry and I'm the Member of Parliament for Vancouver Centre and I am very proud of what this government has done in two years. Um, we've actually begun to show that, uh, that we are moving into the 21st century economies where innovation and super clusters, which, which are really, really important to bring, give Canada some real traction in the world to be known as a place where you go to for this kind of innovation and this kind of technology. This is all happening. We're on the map. We're the best performer economically in the G7. And so I think it's great. We're, we're, women are now equal in, real, in word as well as in, in deed. They're, they're, women are moving forward. We're bringing these to the world. We're talking about, about refugees. We're talking about uh, uh, equality for women. We're talking about LGBTQ. These are things that are happening. We're a face in the world again. So what? Am I, what's not there not to be proud of? Absolutely. Roger Cousin, member of Parliament, Cape Breton Council. Uh, I think... Uh, Staying away from talking points, I, I, I think most Canadians are seeing that uh, you know things are things are going okay. I, there's concerns out there um, about what's going on south of the border, and they're watching uh, uh, our prime minister and our government, and they're saying you know we're pretty fortunate to uh, live in the place that we live. So it's 17 years for me, eh? So uh, <laughs> some days were diamonds, other days not so much, but uh, I, I think we're in a pretty good place right now. Is that, that's just for print anyway, eh? That's not... No, uh, it's for radio. It's a podcast. No way. Yeah. I wouldn't have sucked so bad. Oh, you were good. I wouldn't have sucked good. so bad. Well, that's our show. If you enjoyed this episode and you're listening on iTunes, please leave us a review there. As always, we love to hear from you. Send us your thoughts and story ideas. You can reach me through Facebook or Twitter at Althea Raj, A-L-T-H-I-A-R-A-J is my handle. A big, big thank you this week to our lovely producer, Zian Lum, and our technical producer, Stephanie Warner. Andre Lau is our executive producer. I'm Althea Raj. Have a great week. <laughs>